today we have Vit from Key Concepts with us. Uh, Vit's been on the podcast before, and we attended, uh, a few of my friends and I attended a Key Concepts, uh, what was called the Hello World uh, event mm -hmm. uh, a few weeks ago. And congratulations, it was a beautiful event. Thank and you. I can't help but think about the enormous amount of energy that you've put into the planning of it. It felt like a Berkshire Hathaway or Apple annual gathering. Yeah. And, you know, it had that that sense of importance and urgency. But I kept thinking about how much effort and energy you put into it as a founder, as a, a visionary. But the young people today and the people sort of, it doesn't have to be young. I feel like it's all over the workforce. I feel like there's a, a, a pullback in motivation and a pullback in the idea of working a nine to five. You know, do you find that to be a challenge for your work? Well, it's, it's always been a challenge, I think. But I think the, the the framing of it. So let's let's change the framing a little bit too. And I, I hear this a lot um, about you know Gen Z is uh, you know um, not made the way that we we made. Yeah, or millennials or late millennials are not the same ways as the, the boomers and. And, you know, rightfully so, because, you know, each generation is very different. Um, and, yeah, so, like you said, the lack of motivations and, you know, not really subscribing to 9 to 5 um, really is not about who they are, really. I think it's the, um, it's the society that they grew up in. And, you know, to be completely honest, I, don't, I think most people forgot, you know, at this point, uh, you know, we just went through once in a century pandemic, right? Yeah. So um, obviously behavior is going to change. Like, and then right after that, you know, if you can see the job market lately, you know, it didn't really change or it actually went up. Um, so the job market is really strong. That indicates that the, the economy is probably going to be softest lending, I would say. Yeah. And so... But what that really means is, you know, the job market is really providing a lot of options. So if you're a Gen Z, if you're, you know, highly intelligent, if you're late millennials and you're, you're you now have a lot of different options, you know, why would you even subscribe to the nine to five? Yeah, yeah. You know, so I think that the framing of it is, you know, from our standpoint, uh, like we're early millennials or, you know, um, late boomers would be have to really understand that, yes, um, they're not the same way, but maybe they've been dealt with a really bad hand or they just have a lot more options. And so it's always going to be a challenge. Work, um, as we know it, um, has already changed. And um, I would point this to another series. I don't know if you've um, ever watched it. It's called The Bear. Yeah. <laughs> Season two is a drop. Yeah. It's amazing. But it really asked the question of why work in a restaurant industry anyway? Like if the industry is so broken, why work in it, right? So there's yeah. a lot of different dynamic in it. It's, it's really pointing it out. And uh, um, so it also answered a lot of the things that you just asked about, which is, you know, work has changed. Um, and how or why does the younger generations are lacking motivations? And it's, it answers a lot of that. Yeah. And, um, it's really because they've been dealt a bad hand and uh, the economy and the the workplace for it has been broken for so long. And now they kind of like that revolutions, you know, that evolution, the re revolutions of breaking out of that mold, I think. So just to give everybody a some sort of reference, the presentation, the Hello World rep, uh, presentation that we sat through was about your restaurant group, which is one of the most um, brilliant restaurant groups that we have uh, for Vietnamese Americans, I think in the US. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but you're <laughs> the biggest group, the Vietnamese American uh, biggest restaurant group. And you had a um, hours long presentation about the future of where you're going with the company, the vision mm -hmm. of where you want to take the company. And it was yeah, elaborately planned uh the way you situated every little thing every little plot that you could think of was put out there for us to to really see everything from 
the idea of property acquisition to um, AI and how AI would benefit the workforce that you uh, are assembling. Now, that seems like it took a long time. And I just wanted to ask you the process of how did you put that all that together? Yeah, so that was a very good question. Nobody asked this question. So, <laughs> all right, so we took this opportunity to, to answer it. Um, so I had this vision of key concepts right around 2018. Um, so we started our first concept in 2014, which is Soup Noodle Bar. And then we had a Vox Kitchen along the way. And I have a few more other locations and a few other franchises that we do. But I, I had that eureka moment in around 2018, where we have so many different um, employees start quitting our company. And so the exits, um, you know, interview, we always ask them like, okay, well, understanding that you leaving us, mm-hmm. um, is it the pay? Is it the environment? What is it? And so the, the most common question is actually not the pay. So it's regardless of how much you pay them, they're not staying. Um, and so for them, it was a learning experience. So they felt like they hit a plateau at yeah. a certain point. I mean, what could you learn much in a in a Vietnamese restaurant or you know in a pho restaurant? And because we're not a chef-driven group yeah. at that time, um, so everything was standardized. Everything was very you know obviously commercialized, so that we could have enough revenues and stability in our, our growth. And so they felt, you know, they needed to go and learn more. So we start losing. So we train them from the ground up all the way into like a GM level or general manager level or uh, executive chef level. You know, what is out there? What's more to them? So they have to leave us to go study some more. Well, some came back, but we know that was a common theme. So um, in 2018, we, I talked to my partners and I say, we're losing people. Right, we're losing a lot of people. Um, what if we create a brand where we're not forcing down their throat on just you know the same food every day, repetitive, the nine to five, like you said, the boring stuff, but a restaurant where profit is not the goal, but the goal is to curate talent. The goal is to have. So after they leave all of our other restaurant, they can go to this restaurant and they, they can do whatever they want as long as it makes you know um, perfect sense for them to learn more, to explore. And as long as it break even or like a little bit of loss, we're okay. So it was more of an institution for us to, 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 to curate talent. And so we found a company called Jam Dining. And that was something that we had, you know what? No profit needed. Wow. Once you're done, you can go there and you can explore. You can do whatever you want as long as that kind of like, um, you know, uh, uh, help you stay with our group. Um, and leading that concept, I, I needed somebody to 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 lead that program because I wasn't there going to be there all the time. I'm still doing my CEO work. Um, I can still cook and do R&D, but only a little bit of time. So my um, my third partner would came on board, um, which is uh, Edward, and um, we t- took him from Tao Group. And so he was leading that program. And during that time, I was feeling, okay, this might be a good idea. And so uh, at, in, and that was the year that, you know, Kira was just born as well, my, my daughter. And so we felt, hey, if that is the case and we can actually keep all these talents, I think we could become a restaurant group. Um, and so at that time, we found it, um, you know, key concept, uh, name it after my daughter, Kira. Um, so that was the whole entire plot of things, right? So we created that ideas to make sure that we can curate talent. And because of that, we create a restaurant group. And so when we created that restaurant group, there was a lot of other options for us to to move from. Now, do we want to franchise things? Do we want to go chain? Do we want to go, um, you know, do all the big groups are doing? And then we pinpointed that, you know, deep down within our heart, the only reason why that we even started doing business here is because of Little Saigon. We came here because of Little Saigon. We really want to make Little Saigon a much better place for for me, for Kira to, to, to grow up in. And so that changed our whole entire perspective 
of not just doing just restaurant group per se, but we have finally became something that we now call hospitality solution. So what hospitality solution is, is no longer just a restaurant group, but anything that relating to food and beverage as a solution. So let's just say um, we think of restaurant as in like, oh, I want Chinese food today or Japanese food tomorrow, Korean food, um, you know, the next day. But completely honest to ourselves, the way that we think of food and beverage is behaviors. So not asking of the, the when and where, but we now asking the who and the what. So if you're looking at like this kind of like bird's eye view down, I would say, okay, well, today you're asking yourself, what time am I eating? Where am I eating at, right? So you're asking the when and the where a lot, but the human behavior is different than that, right? So now we can ask if, you know, Kenneth as a person is a who, what do you need? So who and the what and the why behind it is a lot more important to us. So we change it that way. And so then I would think, okay, when you first wake up, you probably want a cup of coffee or pastry on the way to work. So that felt like maybe you need a key coffee house, mm -hmm. a coffee solution. And then you go into lunch and you're like, okay, well, I want something quick and easy, I can take a bite and then I can, you know, still work on my days. It sounds like a Mikey roll box to me. So that's, that's a roll right there. And then right after lunch, you probably want to have a quick hangout, quick snack on the way, you know, um, to, 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 before you go home, that could be another, I would say a tea concept right there. Or at nighttime, let's just say if you go on celebrations, you probably go to gym because that's more like a, a fine casual dining or you want something that is like, yes, Western, but like half Asian in a sense, but it's still a very nice setting um, and Italian food. That sounds like an E9 to me, you know? And so um, you sometimes want to have uh, people to come to your house and do catering. That's how like key catering to me. Right. Sometimes you just want to have something in your pantry that's some brand that you really trust. That sounds like a direct-to-consumer brand to me. What if you want meal prep? That sounds like something that key meal prep can do for you. So if you really think about it, then the questions now completely change and have moved us from whatever that the rest of the world is doing, where asking the when and where all the time. And we're looking at a bird's eye view um, down and, and change it completely and ask yourself the who, the what, and then put the why behind it. And the why is always be, you know, what if we turn this little Saigon area into the utopia of hospitality solution, the center of the world in innovations in F&B. And so that, that, that's where key concept is really is now. And how to communicate that to the rest of the world, we felt that was important for us to put on a keynote to explain all of that. And, and that was also the reason why that we felt like, you know, as a, as a you know, I have a, a technology background. So if you feel like it's, it's a startup, it's a tech startup, with a very different concept of F&B and asking completely different set of questions of the why and the what and the who, then that would be completely different for a lot of people. And I felt that was needed to say hello world for the first time. So that was- That's a great explanation. And as I'm listening to you explain all this, I'm thinking of sort of like the, the visionaries of the world, like Elon Musk and, and Bezos. They sort of, you know, when when you hear them, it feels like they're like aliens that they just dropped in from like outer space and they have this like <laughs> technology, this new way of looking at. I mean, frankly, you have a, a brand new way of looking at the hospitality world, the F&B world in Little Saigon, in a very Vietnamese enclave of the United States. Where did you really get this sort of, this ability to kind of, step out of the perspective of a regular restaurant owner because it sounds like you came from that background right at at soup you sounded like a one restaurant operator you did really well and you were noticing um an attrition rate that you weren't comfortable with but in order to go from that point to where you are today what happened along the way to kind of 
ensure that you have this bigger ecosystem because it sounds like alien technology when i when i hear it <laughs> i'm like no other vietnamese uh in the world i mean i might be wrong about vietnam because i don't know the vietnam uh, fnb world but uh when it comes to the united states especially little saigon is such a big uh enclave that we have this is very new this is alien technology to me mm -hmm. and so i wonder is it mentors is it your tech background what exactly is it that gave you this sort of like this bird's eye this um, 360 view of um, humanity as it exists in the food and beverage space. That's a very deep question, and and so let's 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 um, break it up into two parts. Because the first part is, you know, obviously, how did I have this view? And um, I think that was very early on in my early days, where. My dad is not one of the most successful dad, I would say, um, obviously, um, now that I can see it back. Um, but one thing that he really gave me was at a very early age, he actually answered a lot of my questions. You know, like how when you grew up, what was the first question that you asked all the time? You never asked what? You never ask a who, a when, a where, or a how. You always ask why. That's yeah. why. You know, like, you know, have you ever yeah. <laughs> seen that one kid that always asks why, why? 10,000 times? I yeah. think it's the same way. And so, you know, like, you know, parents, sometimes we just get really tired and we just yeah. don't want, you know, and so we stop answering at one point. You're like, you know what? Just go back to your room, right? Uh, my dad kept answering. He was keep answering, answering, answering. So I could have any question I want and I can come to him. And I was like, why are we so privileged and people so poor? And he was explaining everything about like communism and like wow. capitalism. And I was five. <laughs> wow. uh, but um, little do, did he know or I know that I actually kind of understood it. And so it kind of stuck with me for my whole entire adult life where I always know when to ask why. Mm. And it's really amplified when I started reading that book, Start With Why by Simon Sinek. And it just really hit the both eyes and like, voila. I mean, this is common sense. Like we grew up asking the exactly same question all the time. Yeah. For some reason in the middle, because of society, because of the way that we frame our youth, it really suppressed that, right? So you stop asking why, and now you're asking, because you're so scared now, you're asking when, where, the how, the what, and the, you know. And then it just really killed uh, innovations. Um, so the second part of that is because when I was in school, um, Three things that happened in 2008, I think the economy was really bad. So I felt like, you know, why do I burn 60K a year to go to school um, for my parents, which right now they were kind of struggling at that point. Uh, rather than I just learned myself, you know, I felt like school was kind of slow for me. So what if I can just read anything I want, learn anything I want? So I decided to drop out. And dropping out, like, I don't recommend people dropping out, by the way, like, finish your school. Like, yeah. that was important. I felt if I would have just stayed, I would have gone way further in life. But I did. It made that. I, I still think it was kind of like a bad decision. But it was good in a sense where it allowed me to learn whatever that I wanted to. So I didn't have that framework. And so it allowed me to read 40. 50, 60 books a year. And I kept that habit for a real long time. I mean, I dropped like the lowest point, still probably going to be like 30 books a year. Oh. But I, I kept up with all of it, right? So, and that gave me the world knowledge in a sense of how to understand world differently to I think most people. Um, and that helped me have that view. And the second part of it is now that I have that view, how do I apply it, right, to whatever that I'm doing? 
And so I've been struggling asking the ultimate why question was, why do I exist? I, I, I know a lot of the otherwise, right? But why do I exist? Why am I in this body, have this consciousness here and have all of these, I would call luck around me. The fact that I'm born not disabled, luck. The fact that, you know, I met someone that supported me, luck. The fact that I was born in a loving family, luck. The fact that I get to be in America, still, I believe, the best country in the world, luck. So, yes, people ask me all the time, you got to where you are, is it luck? I'm like, absolutely it's luck. Absolutely it's luck. What if I was born in a plain of Africa, have nothing in my names, nobody loving me, and an orphan? How would that make me, right? Obviously, even if I have this consciousness, I wouldn't be able to do anything. So absolutely it's luck. So, um, so that was the first part of it. And now that I understand that, and I know that I was lucky enough to, to be in this body and understand all of this and have this knowledge now, I got to find my tool. I, how do I find my pathway to explain all of these ideas? Um, and so now that I have some sort of like solutions, I have to start looking for what is the most important problems. And so like, you know, Elon said that he pinpointed like four or five different problems, like really big problems. And he, you know, base of his company. And for me, I felt like it was my mission in life that now I'm here in Little Saigon, that I'll be the bridge between the largest Vietnamese community in the world and the second largest community in the world. And so I felt the easiest way to bring people together was food and shelter. And I, I said that in the very beginning of the keynote, you know, those are the two biggest problems that if I know that, you know, if I can build more houses or more commercial areas, or if I focus on supplying food and beverage, that was some sort of connection and a solution to bring people together. And so being an artist myself, obviously, you know, like I've been an artist all my life. And um, I think that's also um, the, the part of the second part, which is important that I think more artists or designer should be CEOs because they think of the world, they look at the world very differently. They look at the world in the UI UX kind of feel, right? And then you have the products guys where, you know, a lot of people that are doing business in like an F&B industry, they focus a lot on the product. So they're product guys. So think of them like engineers. So there's a lot of engineer, a lot of um, you know, that in, in, in the CEO world, but not a lot of philosophers, philosophy, um, you know, um, historians, artists, you know, on the social side of things. Um, be more CEOs. And it makes absolutely no sense to me that, you know, when you go to school, if you get a BA degree or BS degree, right? Bachelor of Science. A lot more Bachelor of Science is actually CEOs, which is, you know, obviously structures and, you know, you engineering your company. But if you get a business degree, it's not a BS degree. It's a BA degree. It's a Bachelor of Arts. And they, they categorize it because deep down, everyone knows business is an art. It's never a science. And so I'm very surprised at like how many other artists out there is also CEOs. I mean, if there's some other artist CEO out there, I would like to meet them. But um, I think that really gives me the overview of everything. Obviously, the first part of like how I grew up and the second part of like now that I have this knowledge, I have to pick one and I pick food first um, using an, a lens of an artist in a sense where I focus more on the user experience and user interface. And I call it human interface and human experience. I want to return back to this question about you saying that you regret not finishing college and you think that it would have been better. I don't know. I, I'm, I think I disagree with that. And simply mm -hmm. because um, I think at the end of the day, what really plays uh, a big key, and you mentioned it, is luck is first. That's first and foremost. Yeah, luck is luck. Every single step of the game will change 
things for you that you look back and you go, that had everything to do with luck. But luck is everything. And then the other thing that I think really beats, um, I mean, luck is first. And then the second biggest thing, bigger than education, is ambition. This natural drive. Because then I have to ask you now, what do you think is driving you? So, you know, luck is one thing that 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 is the most needed thing. But luck to me, luck to me is 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 a, a must necessary. But ambition, if you don't have that, um, it doesn't matter how much education you have. Yeah. And that, that goes back to the question of why, right? And the ultimate question of why, and I keep mentioning it, is why do I exist? Like, what is the meaning of my being? Um, and so I, you know, I still have that question every, practically every day, practically every day. And I ask myself the same question. And so I think that was the only thing that really got me out of bed. Because, you know, why do you even get out of bed, you know, uh, in the morning? Obviously, you know, obviously making money, paying bills and all that. But that's that's the mundane um, thing that everybody's doing. Um, but for me, it was more about getting out of bed to figure out why do I exist? Um, and along the way, obviously, I have a lot of different answers along the way, but it's all boiled down to one thing. And that also in my keynote. And that was the very first thing I talked about. What do I want to be when I grow up? And the answer is, I don't know exactly, but I want to be useful. I just want to be a useful human being. So I, if I'm not adding to humanity, I feel like, why do I exist? It's, you know, I can't just subtract from it. You know, like we can't just take it away. How do I add? Um, and um, my up, my upbringing really kind of like shaped that a lot too, where. Actually, my dad's side is very privileged. You know, I was I was a very privileged kid on, on my dad's side. But it's interestingly enough, I spent also one more day. So I have two weekend days, right? So obviously Saturday and Sunday. One day I would spend it at my my dad's side. One day I would spend it at my mom's side. Drastically different. Wow. My dad's side was very privileged. I really I I I actually had a sober. <laughs> And just kind of like chauffeur me around uh, in the car. At that time, was everyone is not, you know, it's just, it's crazy. But the moment that they dropped me off at my grandma's house is a project, the mm. government project. The only bed that I knew of at that time was the floor. Um, so the whole entire, you know, my uh, gra grandma's, I mean, grandpa's side on my mom's side didn't even have a bed. <laughs> we were literally just lay on the floor and just slept together in that so one. So you got to see both of these worlds at one I time. I see both. Wow. I saw both and I saw both every single week. And it just really changed my perspective of like, wow, like life is really different, you know, from one end to another end. Um, and so, and that's why the question of me asking my dad, like, why are we so privileged and other people is not? Because yeah. it always kind of come up. And, um, I think that was my main mission in life was, and one thing that my dad said too, you know, there's a lot of governments, there's a lot of different system that in order for, for them to level the playing field, instead of bringing everyone from the bottom up, they bring the top down just so that everyone's kind of like on the same level. Um, but so I made my mission in life was to bring every bottom up. And so that was my why. Um, how why I left the country. I felt like that was my bottleneck. I could not grow anymore in that country. So by like 16 years old, I was applying to all these different countries and didn't matter who called me. You know, I applied to Australia, you know, England, uh, America. America happened to call me first. So I just applied and I just went. Uh, and when I came here, it really completely changed my perception of life. Um, where over here, as long as you work hard, as long as you you know, put your hat down and and really going at it, you know, there's really no stopping you. There's there's no physical barrier or there's no emotional barrier. You can just keep going, right? Um, and that really left a strong impression on me where what if I can create an organization to amplify it, 
and not just for everybody in a sense where, but, you know, yes, for everybody, but strongly focus on the Vietnamese community, on the AAPI community, where, you know, we less serve, obviously, we less privilege, right? Um, and create a system where right now, I, I literally can tell you right now, you know, anybody listen to this podcast, if you come up to me, no experience, right out of school, and you say, knock on the door, I'm going to work for you, I'm going to spend every waking minute to make your company better, to make my life better, to make the community better, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes, day in, day out. I would hire them and pay them a much better wage than someone with 10, 20 years experience. Because essentially, that's what the American dream is all about, right? So you just work hard, you keep going at it. And if you look at all of our organization too, you know, most of our staff is built from the ground up. And, you know, and that's one of the biggest reasons why that we pay a lot higher than most restaurant group. You know, um, a lot of our managers are get paid a lot higher um, even now, you know, I would say the middle management and lower employee um, level are all getting paid a lot higher than most people is because of that reason. And go back to the asking the why, right? And I felt, you know, if I can just bring people from the bottom up a lot faster, then, you know, we don't have to worry about who's getting really rich up here. You know, they can stay rich, whatever they want. But, you know, how fast we can elevate everybody from the bottom up. And that's why. Yeah. And all of this uh, goes back to these uh, one simple question. I, I, I question all the time because we, we have kids around the same age. What we were able to see, what you were able to see with, with your dad's side, your mom's side, the disparity, the difference in the, the economics. Mm-hmm. And then what I was able to witness uh, going back to Vietnam all these years and and as a child uh, living through certain pockets of poverty, we got to witness that and we got to like, I think it cranked up our ambition and our drive. But when we think about our, our kids, you know, they're going to be in a much higher yeah. privileged class than we are. Does that ever bother you? It does not actually. And here's, let me explain. <laughs> and I, I have a very different view about this too. You know, like, so how... You know, like how, some, I mean, there's two camps. If you're a millionaire or multimillionaire, you're like, oh man, my kid is really privileged and like they're going to, um, and there's just another camp where like, I'm not going to give them anything. Yeah. They don't know. Like they're, I'm just going to like, not even money, not, like they're flying coach. Yeah. I don't, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is how I think. Throughout our human history, let's just say the most famous example of, of, of it all, Buddha, he was privileged. He was a prince. He grew up a prince. How many historical figures that we can name right now was either royalty or, or prince and really sacrificed everything? And elevate everyone else. And, you know, obviously, I, I, I keep naming it, but Buddha was one of them, right? We can, we can argue the fact that if, you know, the, um, the higher figure or, you know, is he, you know, real, a real God or, you know, that doesn't matter. Historical fact, he was a person, very privileged, and went out there, sacrificed everything, and uplift everybody else. And throughout human history, that happened multiple times. But there also is probably an overwhelming majority of Kung Hu, right? As a result exactly. of rich families. So how do you ensure that our children are kind of, how do we do this? How do we think and cultivate this idea of, you know, Buddha coming from a higher class and uplifting the lower class and and making sure that there is enough for everybody. I think that's a beautiful story that I I've never really thought about. Yeah. Um. So you're right. I mean, going back to that point where like a lot of you know obviously naughty kids and yeah, uh, taking for granted. Um. Let me give you another example as well. Whereas 
I think education is the number one key. Um, our founding fathers, the one who created this country. Do we really think this whole entire country existed and being fought because of all of the lower class really got together and started revolutions? I That wasn't the case. The founding father was all multi-millionaires. Yeah. And they put their life at risk, their livelihood at risk, fighting for something that they believed in. And most of them are highly educated. So I think if we really think about it that way, then it kind of changed our perception a little bit. Yeah. About, yes, being born in a privileged family might break you. But with the right education, not just at school, but I think school education is important. But what really important is is homeschooling. Yeah, the parents, how you talk to them, how you accustom to them to understand the world in a way that is, I would say, um, more useful for human beings. Mm. And if they found a way to be a lot more useful for humanity. I think they can make a much better impact than anyone else. And so that's my school of thoughts where, yes, understanding like just say your kid, my kid here are going to grow up very privileged. Our job is to make sure that they contribute to humanity. And so if they are somewhere else or doing other things, I really think it's our responsibility. And so I'll take full responsibility for how Kira is going to turn out. Um, if, you know, she grows up and, and not contributing to humanity, I, I have felt, not her, mm. in a sense. Yeah. So that's my school thought. It's a great answer. Now, this idea of cultures like the Japanese and the Germans, you know, yeah. they have these drills. They just go and they grind and they just... <laughs> Really, hundreds of you. I, I really love talking about this stuff because it's Germans uh, and Japanese. And and you know, before we got on the call, um, you had spoken about going back to Japan a few times for R and D. Yeah. And I'm sure, as anybody who's been to Japan, you can visit these factories and these businesses that have been around for hundreds of years, and you can see the cultural traditions of the Japanese loving and valuing the work process. And I feel. I feel like, and maybe uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the Vietnamese tradition, we are we are quicker <laughs> at making money, but mm -hmm. less about the process. So I used to have this problem with my dad. He was more like the Japanese, and I hated that <laughs> about him. He would get things done at the cost of losing money, but the work that he mm -hmm. did always, always beautiful and high quality. And I said mm -hmm. to him all the time, I said, Dad, we only need 90% because the client can't see your 110% effort. Mm. They can only see 90. They can only detect 90. And that last 10, 20% that you're putting effort in, we're losing money because of that. Yeah. His whole life, he was working that way. And I hated the whole long process of, of the way he would work as like a Japanese person. But now as I get older, uh, I am questioning why I even had those thoughts. Um, and a lot of it does reflect, I think, in the way that, you know, I've seen business being conducted in the Vietnamese community. Um, yes, that is true. Um, <laughs> so, well, I we have the same experience in a sense. I don't know. We, we're now that we're talking, it's just we're so similar in so many different ways. And my dad's the same thing. Oh, wow. <laughs> Growing up. So he's, Okay, so he's the kind of guy who, if all of the employees could eat and the company is suffering for many months, he would choose that route rather than making money. Like, it's just how he is as a person. I, I Obviously, I, growing up, I didn't understand it at first, but I always asked him why, right? And then he, you know, I remember this very vividly. Very vividly. One night, we were shipping up tons of containers out to the U.S. You know, we were doing a lot of stuff for Sears and JCPenney's and all that stuff. But shooting like clothing. So I always wanted to spend more time with him because he's never home. 
So, uh, you know, hey, you know, dad, uh, can I come? And so he would drag me to the factory and I slept on the factory, factory floor and, you know, on, on the couch. And sometimes I caught a glimpse, very small, but it stuck with me forever, was that was probably like 1 or 2 a.m. at night. Every single one in the, in the company was on like overdrive because we have to load this container up. If not, we're not going to make time and we have to um, pay all the fees. So he didn't have to be there. Everybody was working, and but he was there. And so when I was laying down and I, I saw it, like he didn't sleep at all. And I was like, hey, you know, why don't you go to sleep? And he didn't say anything. And all he was doing is stand right by the window. So I was laying down like this, and I remember this vividly. And he was staying right by the window, looking down to the to factory floor because people were loading up stuff. And on his hand, he was just doing this. And I don't know why was, he was doing that, but he was, in a sense, nervous and extremely concerned. And I was thinking that he was concerning about, you know, like how people would be like up and down and, you know, checking the stock and everything. And I remember that phone call. So he called somebody. Why are, are the food not here yet? Oh, wow. So he, he wasn't asking, like, are we loading it up on time? Was like, Why are the food not here yet? Because he knew everyone was working overdrive. And he knew that was something that, you know, um, they probably didn't eat in time. And so that that really stuck with me, like for the longest time. And everything that he does, when I asked him, like, why are you going the extra mile to do certain like little things? And he said this, the customer might not see it. But we do. We we saw all the effort, and that helped us make us sleep at night. And so I think your dad was the same camp, right? Um, and obviously, when I came here, you know, one other person that I always listened to, and I always, you know, following his lead was uh, Steve Jobs. And as a very young age, too, you know, um, he was. You know, helping his dad painting the fence yeah, in the front. Yeah, remember that story. Remember that story. Great story. Yeah, tell yeah, it. Yeah, and then yeah, and then the dad was like, "Well, now that you paint the front, that looks really nice to the neighbor. Let's paint the back of the fence." I'm like, "But no one's gonna see it." And he looked over and he said to Steve, "But we do. Make it beautiful, inside out." And that stuck with him over the years. So if you break up any computer, Apple computer. It's not just beautiful outside. The inside is a work of art. Hmm. This next computer, everything else, everything that he does is beautiful outside in. And I thought that was important. And so we took that philosophy with everything we do. So I don't care how much thing that is going on in the front and customer can see it, but in the back, even with just a script, a message, a memo to our employee, which customer would never see, or a party for our staff, or an event for our staff, or whatever it is that back end, make it the most memorable, most beautiful, because we do see it. Yeah, and that's an important message because I think in order for these cultures like the Japanese to to really don't die, to really continue to persevere and to showcase the quality of the the product that they do you have to have that mindset that we're making it yeah. for, for us for us for us you live with it you yeah for us you put it out there knowing that you did every single you know humanly possible ways to make it the best product you could and and, and yeah. you can charge for it Absolutely. Now that you can charge for it. That brings me to the ne- the last question, the last topic that I really want to get into is somehow you've actually brought the optics, the way we look at 
perhaps Vietnamese food, uh, whether that it's at Gem or at um, or Nep, we can see it. Some a chef recently told me, a uh, Vietnamese chef that I respect a lot. Um, he came back from Nep, and he said that's the best Vietnamese restaurant we have. Oh. And I and Thank I respect you. what he says a lot, uh, Chef Win. <laughs> And um, he said that, and I, and I said, I understand, because I, I, you know, I was telling him that we've talked a, a few times, and you're, you're a visionary, and you understand what you just said about the pricing of things. Now, when you really analyze pho or ramen, ramen is yeah. much more expensive than pho. And if you mm. really analyze <laughs> it, there should be no reason for that. Do you yes. see a time where Vietnamese cuisine will get its sort of day in the sun, which is the pricing will reflect the true value of uh, our food as it relates to other cuisines in the world. We are here now. We are absolutely here now. <clears throat> to be honest with you, how, when was the last time that you went to a, um, a pho restaurant lately and you pay less than $10? Like nowhere right. anymore. Nowhere. <laughs> nowhere anymore, right? No. So we are here now, which is a, an amazing thing to see. Now, we call it, we call it, I would say, I, we can call it eureka moment. You can call it, you know, revelations. You can call it evolutions. But in the end of the day, at the end of the day, I think people start to, like I said, you know, the, the Gen Zs and the newer generations, they now start to know that, hey, as long as we can put out really high quality product, regardless of what it is, we can charge. So the, the, the Vietnamese population probably didn't try to do that first with, uh, with pho restaurant, but because all of these, you know, Vietnamese restaurant that is not charging too much, so they could not afford the wave of talent of Vietnamese people. So what do they do? Where do they go? They go to New York, Chicago, San Francisco, all over the world and doing other cuisines. And I'm pretty sure they have exactly the same question. Like it costs way more than ramen, a lot more work. Why are we charging less? And I'm pretty sure because all of that questions start popping up and down. And that's when they come back here. And we're very happy to one of the first few to like really push Little Saigon to the edge. And now create this economy where, hey, you can charge people if you have beautiful um, ambience, ambience yeah. if you have really good service, if you have good food and quality food, you can charge. And they see how Chem was charging people, how Vox was charging people, how Nate was charging people. Now they embolden to, hey, we can charge too, as long as the quality is, is, is there. Um, so... I'm proud of that fact that we're one of the first few, um, but it's we're definitely here now. I mean, most places that I know that is Vietnamese cuisine nowadays, you got to pay to play. You got to come in and be ready to pay exactly as any other restaurant, um, you know, in the world. There's another restaurant that I just found out. It's called Gao Viet Kitchen in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. um, very not expensive, but they charge the right price. They chart the right price. And I'm very happy for him. He's like now almost have like half a million followers on, on his Instagram. Or wow. Like wow. It's I'm amazing to, to see. Yeah. Super, super successful. I think he has two locations now. Uh, met him once uh, in passing, but, you know, very close friend with Calvin. Bo I don't know if you know yeah. Calvin from Freaking Dude Lipsistness. And so he's, yeah. So, I mean, people like that or, the first Vietnamese restaurant that got a Michelin star in LA, which is uh, Fenakai. Yeah, Min. Min. I mean, she, you, you go there, you pay, you know, if high quality food, um, stuff like that. And then, uh, oh, a, a, a dear friend of ours, um, um, I, I don't know how to pronounce this restaurant. I completely forgot um, how we, we say it, but he's in Orlando. Um, and it's also tasting menu. I, I'll send you after. It's beautiful the way that he does it. Almost kind of like Somni-like to me. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. And obviously he charges. So 
um, we are absolutely here now and I'm super happy for it. What a pleasant answer that was because I, uh, this is the first time. I mean, this is the first time I've heard anybody say, we are here now. We are here. We are here now. Prices are going to be here. And years ago, people would be like, oh, that's too much for Vietnamese food. Our people would say that. But now it's like, no, it's not. It We should be, our restaurant businesses should be making the same amount as it relates to an Italian restaurant or Japanese or whatever. Yes, because remember, the margin is extremely thin. Yeah. So we don't charge that much. We can't take care of our staff. That's a problem, right? The industry is so broken to a point where like, we can't even pay our staff properly. So knowing this, that you come in and you pay the same amount as any Italian restaurant or Japanese restaurant or uh, German restaurant or American restaurant, yes, you are helping help make this industry a lot better. And you preserving history, you preserving this whole entire economy. And so ask yourself this, 10, 20, 30, 50 years from now, do you still want to eat at the same establishment as you're eating now? If you do, please pay the right price. I mean, everybody should pay a little bit more and eating more quality food and help fix the whole entire industry on its own. Our margin is extremely thin, a few percent, yeah, almost break even at most, most months. Some months we're going, uh, going a little bit under. And so that's the whole point. The whole point is we really want to take care of our staff and it costs a lot of money. Yeah. So. Vit, thank you so much. You've illuminated a lot of these topics and you've done it in a way that's not businessy. You've done it in a way that's very philosophical. And I think getting to the heart of these matters in a philosopher's way is uh, the way to do it because we can we can relate and empathize with the journey. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Vid. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. And, you know, always a pleasure. Always a pleasure to be on your podcast. Likewise. Thank you, Vid. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.